Now, I missed you last week. Um, I'm sure you didn't miss me, but I miss you. And I've, uh, I was feeling actually, you know, right as rain all week until I woke up this morning. And so I'm not feeling great this morning. And uh, you may, maybe you cannot tell a difference, but I can tell a difference. And, uh, and so I apologize if there are going to be some sniffles and stuff later in the, in the sermon. Um, we are back in uh, the book of Romans this morning, looking at Romans chapter 7, verses 14 to 25. And you're going to find it very helpful to have a copy of God's Word open in front of you this morning. And if you do not have your own Bible or a device with the Bible on it, then you can find a black one. It looks like this. Under a chair near you will be on page 943 in these black Bibles. And this series we're in is you know, called Life in the Spirit. And we've been talking about this for, for weeks now. And how in Romans 6, uh, chapter 6, verse 4, we read about how, um, well, what we said at the beginning of the series is this, is that in the gospel, the gospel contains things that God, tells us about things that God does for us by offering up his son, the forgiveness of sins, adoption to his family, but the gospel also does something in us, makes us new creations, as Romans 6, 4 says, able to walk in newness of life. And we've talked about that week after week in this series. And we all like the way that sounds, walking in newness of life. But we all know that our sin gets in the way of that. And the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7 has been uh, really helping us dig deep so that we can build high. Helping us dig deep and really look at sin, really look at our sin in particular. And here in this passage, this is an incredibly, incredibly honest passage where we see the Apostle Paul struggling with his own sin. So will you please follow along with me as I read Romans 7, starting in verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual. But I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree the law is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do not, make sure I get this right, if I I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war, against the law of my mind, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Now, this passage is, it's hard to even read. And it's also one of the most debated passages. Lots of debate. Lots of really intelligent, well-meaning Christians, pastors, theologians who 
who debate, you know, about the, when is the Apostle Paul writing this? What, what, what period in his life is he describing? I mean, it's, it's clear enough that this is autobiographical in nature. They're all first-person pronouns here. But when in his life is he describing in this, in this passage? Well, I've heard three possibilities, and I think we should briefly think through these three possibilities. The first one is the time whenever Paul was a golfer. I mean, look look at verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Right? Is that not a golfer describing his own swing? Right? Over and over again. But that's probably unlikely since golf was invented 1,400 years later in Scotland. Option two is that Paul's describing his life before he became a Christian. So look at verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. And so some well-meaning, very intelligent, godly people look at this and say that the Apostle Paul, confessing that he regularly and even compulsively sins, not only in verse 14, but throughout the whole passage, that he must be describing his life before he became a Christian. But I actually believe, I'm persuaded that option three is actually the the most responsible and the most straightforward way of reading this passage. And that is that the Apostle Paul is describing his life as 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 it is currently as he's writing the book, the letter of Romans. That he's describing his life as a mature, growing Christian. He's describing his life as a leader in the church. He's describing his life as an apostle. And he's describing this this ongoing, passionate struggle with sin. Now, if that's the case, then this passage says a lot to us about what it means to to live the Christian life well. And so some of the evidence for why I believe that option three is the one to go with is that there is a change in the verb tenses. Earlier in this passage, in this chapter, in verses 7 to 13, we see past tense. And Paul is there describing what his life was like before he became a Christian. But then, in verse 14, through the end of the chapter, all of the verb tenses are now present tense. All present tense. And so I believe that the most clear and simple and straightforward, natural way of reading this passage is that the Apostle Paul is describing his life now. Also, there's a change in situation. In verses 7 to 13, we looked at three weeks ago, that Paul talks about how sin killed him. How it killed him. But starting in verse 14, whenever the verb tenses become present, Paul's describing an ongoing struggle with sin. An ongoing struggle with sin. And he's clear that he refuses to give up. He refuses to surrender to sin. And and friends, what I'll say is that I believe only a Christian could describe the struggle the way the Apostle Paul describes this struggle. That before I became a Christian, I would never describe my sin this way. I didn't even recognize most of my sin. And I surely wasn't passionate about it the way the Apostle Paul is. The last piece of evidence, I believe, points to the Apostle Paul being a Christian at the time, describing his life as a Christian in this passage, is that he says he delights in God's law. If you look at verse 22, he says, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. You see, the Bible tells us that only true followers of Jesus Delight in the law of God in their inner being, in in their heart of hearts. Now, if you're here this morning, and surely there's some of you are in a room this size, if you're here this morning, you're not 
a follower of Jesus, I want you to know something. I mean this sincerely. I'm so glad you're here. And I would, per- I would love to meet you. I'd love to meet you today. Don't think I'm too busy after the service. I would love to meet you. And I'd love to even briefly talk to you even about what I'm about to say in the next few minutes together. But and I don't mean this to be offensive, but non-Christians do not delight in God's law. They delight in their own law. They look inside themselves to see what is true. What they believe seems right. What they believe makes sense to them. So I think whenever you consider all this evidence, and the most straightforward way of reading this passage is the Apostle Paul is describing what the maturing, growing Christian life is like in our struggle against sin. So since that's the case, I want us to look at this passage with three headings. First, I want us to see the Christian's condition. Second, I want us to see the Christian's conflict, and then finally the Christian's cry. So the the, the condition, the conflict, and the cry. So let's look at the condition. If you've been with us, or if you're familiar with Romans 6, you know that if you're a follower of Jesus, then your old self was crucified with him. And the wonderful and beautiful mystery of our union with Christ is that when Jesus died, we died with him. When he died for sin, we died too, sin's penalty and enslaving power. And we've been raised to walk in newness of life. This is what we read when we were in Romans 6, Romans 6, verses 6 and 7. We read, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. But this doesn't mean that we're sinlessly perfect. Yes, sin's enslaving, domineering, tyrannical authority over us has been broken and defeated. And even though all of that's true, and that sin cannot and will not ultimately win, sin will still not give up in this life. And so what I think the Apostle Paul is clearly telling us here in this passage is that true followers of Jesus still sin. That we still have what theologians call a sin nature. And although sin's power has been broken by God's grace, sin sin still has very real influence in our lives. And this condition is frustrating. It's frustrating for followers of Jesus. We hate it. We hate it. And the Apostle Paul says that he hates it. He uses that word. I hate this. Because he knows what, what God wants him to do, he, believe that, he believes that God's word is absolutely true, that it's given to him in love for his good. He wants to obey it, but he can't, and so he hates this. And so no one, not even mature, growing, godly Christians, not even apostles, obey God's word perfectly without sin. And we see this in every verse in our passage except verse 22. So look with me at the passage. Look at verse 14. Paul says, I am of the flesh, sold under sin. In verse 15, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Verse 16, I do what I do not want. Verse 17, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Verse 18, I know that nothing good dwells in me, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Verse 19, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Verse 20, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Verse 21, when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Verse 23, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Verse 25, with my flesh I serve the law of sin. 
that followers of Jesus still sin. In fact, in 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, we read this. If we, if followers of Jesus say, we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, friends, seeing, owning, confessing your sin is not a sign that you're not a Christian. That growing true Christians should see your sin. We should see it and we should confess it and we should cry out to God, to our loving and holy God, to give us the grace and the forgiveness that his son Jesus has purchased for us with his life and his death and his resurrection. You see, friends, if we're going to fight well against our sin and we're going to walk in newness of life, then Paul tells us that we need to see our condition. If you're going to fight well against your sin, you can't pretend that you no longer sin. See, look again at verse 21. Paul says, so I find it to be a law. And here, that word law, it doesn't mean God's law. I find it to be a law. This is a truth. This is a principle. This is a reality, an inescapable reality. That when I want to do good, evil lies close at hand. The Apostle Paul is saying, in this life, that sin is an inescapable reality. You can think of it this way. It's like gravity. And just as you will never live a gravity-free existence on this earth, you're never going to live a perfectly sinless existence this side of heaven either. This this is what makes every area of our life complicated and hard. that's That's why family doesn't go smoothly. That's why in marriage we hurt one another. That's why parenting is not natural for us. And there's tension between parents and kids. That's why we have workplace conflict. That's why the government fails us. That's why entertainment is corrupted. It's because sin is all around us and sin is in us. Listen listen to how the famous preacher Charles Spurgeon puts it. He says, the idea of having no sin is a delusion. You're altogether deceived if you say so. The truth is not in you. And you have not seen things in the true light. You must have shut your eyes to the high requirements of the law. You must be a stranger to your own heart. You must be blind to your own conduct every day. And you must have forgotten to search your thoughts and to weigh your motives. Or you would have detected the presence of sin. He who cannot find water in the sea is not more foolish than the man who cannot perceive sin in his members. And as the salt flavors every drop of the Atlantic, so does sin affect every atom of our nature. Now, it doesn't mean we're all as bad as we could be, but that means that none of us are perfectly good. Not even maturing followers of Jesus. Not even pastors. Now, this is a legendary story, but it goes like this about the same pastor, Charles Spurgeon, that he had a man in his church who claimed to be uh, without sin. And so the story goes this way, that Charles Spurgeon invited him over for dinner. And after dinner that the pastor picked up the glass of water and threw it in the man's face. Now, understandably, the man became angry. He became furious that he flew off the handle in, in utter rage and was yelling at the pastor. And the story goes that Spurgeon looked at him and said, Ah, you see, I don't think your sin nature was dead. I think it was, it was easily revived with a splash of water. And, and in many cases, you know what, that's... That's, that's true, right? That's true of us. That's true of growing, maturing Christians. 
that our sin nature will be revived day after day through various temptations, through circumstances, through people. So this is the Christian's condition. Now, that's not all there is in this passage. It's not just, well, no one's perfect, and so that's it. Now, no one is perfect, you need to understand that. But beyond the condition, there's also a conflict, and we've got to hear this. You see, this is a conflict that only a Christian will have. Because like I said a few minutes ago, before people become Christians, they generally think they're good people who are doing well. I mean, I've never met anybody who thinks they're perfect. But non-Christians, and I don't mean this to be offensive if you're not a Christian. I'm so glad you're here. But non-Christians, this is how I thought, and this is how most non-Christians I know think. Yes, they have some bad and undesirable habits, but they don't know anything about a war against sin. They don't know anything about this inner turmoil. You see, because the Christians' war, conflict with sin that the Apostle Paul is describing, it is passionate. It is agonizing. I mean, look at verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but do the very thing I hate. I hate this. It's not that this is bad or undesirable or I'm embarrassed by it, but I hate this. And then he goes on in verses 18 and 19. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Tell me this, friends. When was the last time that you said something that you did was evil? Okay, you you never said that. When was the last time you thought that even to yourself? That was wicked. That was evil. The Apostle Paul says, this is what the conflict is like for me. Look at verses 21 to 23. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive, making me a prisoner. You see, friends, in every true, growing, maturing Christian's heart, there's a war. There's a war. There's a war between your wants and your will and your kingdom and a Christian's heart. And there's a war in between God's wants and his will and his kingdom. And the Apostles Paul point is that we need to see this. If we want to fight this war well, then we have to see that this war is real and it's the most important battle in our life and it takes place in our hearts. And it doesn't begin until you become a Christian. Listen to how pastor theologian R.C. Sproul puts it. He says, we would all like to lead a life of perfect obedience to Christ. But we do not because there's a conflict in our hearts between our general desire for obedience and the specific acts of obedience that confront us. We are people of mixed desires, which is why life does not really become complicated until we are born again. Life becomes complicated because we are involved in a war that penetrates the very deepest recesses of our souls and lasts until our glorification in heaven. This is the universal experience among Christians, and it's what the Apostle Paul is talking about. And so this conflict with sin in the believer's life, it should be agonizing. It should be painful. It should be frustrating. You should hate it. But at the same time, this should be, it should be comforting to you if you know what it feels like. 
It should be comforting to you. Because without it, you'd ask yourself, do I know this Jesus that I say that I know? (laughs) About 150 years ago, Pastor J.C. Ryle wrote a great little book called Holiness. And here's what he says. This is a long quote, but it's very worth it. It says, We may take comfort about our souls if we know anything of an inward fight and conflict. It is the invariable companion of genuine Christian holiness. Do we find in our heart of hearts a spiritual struggle? Do we feel anything of the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh so that we cannot do the things we would? Are we conscious of two principles within us contending for the mastery? Do we feel anything of war in our inward man? Well, let us thank God for it. It's a good sign. It's a strong probable evidence of the great work of sanctification. All true saints are soldiers. Anything is better than apathy, stagnation, deadness, and indifference. We are in a better state than many. The most part of so-called Christians have no feeling at all. I say again, let us take comfort. The child of God has two great marks about him, and of these two we have one. He may be known by his inward warfare as well as by his inward peace. Now let's be honest. Right? If you can't be honest here, where can you be honest? So let's be honest. Which of these two lists best describe you and your fight against sin? Apathy, stagnation, deadness, indifference, complacency. Or agonizing, passionate fight. I hate this. It's a war. Maybe let's get very practical. What is that specific sin that you hate? What is that sin that you hate? What is that sin you are fighting against? Not the bad habit, not something that's a little bit undesirable, but what is it that you hate? What is that besetting sin for you? What is that thing you hate and you keep fighting against, but you keep doing it? You see, Christian maturity is not pretending that you no longer sin. The mature Christian can actually see her sin for what it is. I mean, do you see your sin or are you deceived? We can so easily be deceived. See, the sin of lust masquerades as a harmless secret pleasure. Nobody will know, nobody will get hurt. Listen here, please, to this one. The sin of the idol of beauty masquerades as a desire to be physically fit and healthy. The sin of theft masquerades for people like us in this room as helping myself to some perks of the job. Everyone does it. The sin of selfishness masquerades as standing up for myself and my rights. The, the sin of greed and covetousness masquerade as providing for my family and taking care of my retirement. You see, friends, we have to see our sin for what it really is if we're going to fight well against it and actually see some victories over it. Because you can see some victories. It's not always a losing battle. It's just an ongoing battle. So we've got to see the condition. We've got to see the conflict for what it is. But so that you don't lose heart, I want you to see the cry. Look at verse 24. Remember, we're going to dig down low before we build up high. He cries out, wretched man that I am. (laughs) When's the last time you cried that out? Maybe you shouldn't cry that out. People might think something. They might call somebody. 
Paul cries out in self-frustration and misery. You know why? Because he knows God's word. He knows it's absolutely true. He knows it's given to him in love for his good. He wants to obey it. But he sees his own inability to obey it perfectly. And he hates it. And so he cries out. He cries out in frustration. He cries out in desperation. He's not in any way complacent about his sin. See, he knows he's been forgiven. He knows that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. He knows that God's grace always trumps sin. He knows that if if his sin's here, that God's grace is over here, that the scale always goes like this, that God's grace is always greater. He knows that, but guess what? He wants more. He wants to be rid of his sin. And so he cries out also in verse 24, Who will deliver me from this body of death? I want out. I want to be free from this altogether. Who will deliver me? But notice he knows the answer. And he knows the answer is not Paul. (laughs) He knows the answer is not his own obedience. It's not trying hard to be better. Although this passage is very clear that he is trying so hard, that he's fighting, that he's struggling with all that's in him against this sin. He's applying effort. But he's not trusting in his own effort. What is his answer to his cry? Look at verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He doesn't just say the answer is Jesus. He says thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That he's thankful. He's thankful for that because of his faith in the gospel, his faith in Jesus, life, death, and resurrection, that he already has freedom from sin's penalty and from sin's sin's enslaving power. And he's looking forward And he's thankful that one day that he's going to be ultimately free from sin's very presence. Once and for all. You see, the Christian's cry is one of both self-frustration with our sin and yet deep dependence on Jesus. That Paul is saying, I may be powerless against my sin nature, but the grace of Jesus is powerful and secure. Well, how secure is it? Well, here we're at the end of Romans 7. And because you guys won't stay for another sermon, we've got to stop. But next week we'll be in Romans 8. You know what Romans 8, 1 says? How secure is it? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Remember, we're digging down low to build up high. And where does this wretched man at the end of verse 7 go at the end of Romans chapter 8? In Romans 8, verse 37, we read, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. For I am sure that either death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That he goes from being the wretched man that I am to being more than a conqueror. And that's where we're going. We're, we're digging down deep to see our sin for what it is so we can fight against it and we're going to build up high because that's where we're going. And this is the struggle. That the true follower of Jesus knows. Now, let me let me end this way. Let me end this way. I want to share with you a letter that I received from one of you a couple weeks ago. You won't be. I had permission to share it. Some of you get worried about that. I've got permission to share it, and uh, you're not going to be able to tell if it's a man or a woman. Says, dear Richard. 
Some months back, a private club I am a member of started utilizing a large white paper napkin that I liked. So I decided to take four home without asking for them. I rationalized it. I rationalized it was all right because they had so many of them. I mean, of course they did, right? They got plenty. Then when I would visit the club, I started taking four every time. Never more than four. I decided five would be stealing. (laughs) I decided it was okay because I was paying so much in dues and they could afford it. I became entitled to the paper napkins. Wow. Through the sermon series in Romans, I clearly saw my actions for what they were. Sin, exclamation point. Believe me, I understand what God has done for me through Jesus Christ. Everything. And I want you to know that I will not be taking any more napkins. Although I confess I may not have the courage to confess to management what I've been doing. Friends, this, why do I share that with you? This is Romans 7. I saw what I was doing was sin, exclamation point. What a wretched man that I am. But the very next verse, believe me, I understand what God has done for me through Jesus Christ, everything. So this is a person who understands grace. But they also see their sin. And they understand grace. And they speak God's Grace over themselves into their own hearts. And when it leads to, I'm not going to take any more napkins. I'm going to stop sinning. I'm going to stop this. Now, why is that the perfect way to end this sermon? Because most of us, we read Romans 7. And we hear sin. And we hear evil. And we think about terrorists which is sin and which is evil. We think about other people. Think about bad people. Think about people who've hurt us. I end with a story about napkins because I want you to see that Romans 7, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is your story. And this is my story. You see, we live at this level. This is what walking with Jesus looks like at this level. If you're going to fight against sin, you fight against sin in, in the ordinary, common, mundane, everyday decisions that nobody's going to know about and that you think nobody's really going to care about. You, you live at the level, if you're a Christian, you live at the level of napkins. And am I taking too many napkins? That's what it looks like. I mean, could you imagine hating the fact that you took too many napkins? Oh, by God's grace, we'll all hate that one day. By God's grace, we'll say, oh, I hate that. You see, because if you don't care about what you do with your napkins, what makes you think you don't care about the big things? See, that's where it starts. Caring about everyday things. Those everyday decisions that we make. You see, this person who wrote me this letter is a growing maturing follower of Jesus, not because they're sinlessly perfect, because they're not. They steal napkins. But because they know their condition. They know they still sin. They know they're in a conflict. They're in a war against that sin nature. 
and they know their cry. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And they know the answer. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Father, help us to see our condition. Help us to engage in this conflict. And Father, help us to understand this cry, this cry of self-frustration, this cry of misery over our sin, this passionate, agonizing cry. And yet, the flip side of it, this cry that is filled with dependence on Jesus and assurance of God's love and grace in our lives. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.